welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 10. We're going into the mailbag this week and we're going to focus a little bit on plywood. All the questions have kind of a, a plywood focus. We're going to getting a little bit of feedback from some previous episodes about hardwoods versus softwoods, talking a little bit about um, sustainability and the questions to ask of when, when you're buying lumber. We've got some stories in the industry about some plywood violations, naughty, naughty, talking a little bit about tariffs on plywoods, cheap plywood materials, plywood cores, low chemical um, composition plywoods. And we're going to finish things off by talking about the Tosca Title VI certification, which goes right into that uh, subject of, of low chem plywood, if you will. So let's get started, shall we? First, I wanted to uh, say thanks to new patrons this week, uh, AMAC Brian Gwer. Gwer? GWR? Just Gwer? Maybe he's Welsh. Gwer! Gwer! Phil, Niles, and Alan all uh, became patrons this week. Thank you so much, guys. That uh, support is growing daily, and I'm just so incredibly humbled and honored to see it. Really excited to see we're getting close to that uh, YouTube Species channel milestone as well. So some really good stuff coming soon. A little bit of feedback here. Chris actually wrote in in regards to, uh, I think it was episode eight, uh, Old Stud, New Stud. And he said, um, I, I have a comment responding to the botanical hardwood softwood distinctions you drew in episode eight. You covered this pretty well, but I used to teach biology and I couldn't resist commenting. The fundamental difference between hardwoods and softwoods is, for biologists, reproductive. Ooh, cue the bound chicka wow music. As you noted, there are numerous structural differences between the woods these trees produce, but the simplest and most significant botanical difference is that gymnosperms, coniferous trees, plus ginkgos and a few other plants uh, bear cones, while angiosperms, so-called hardwood trees, and other flowering plants bear seeds, sometimes fruit, sometimes not so much. And that's it. Tree is less a biological classification than it is a physical description. Comparing softwoods and hardwoods is, biologically, kind of like comparing birds and bats simply because they both fly. Just like there are evergreen hardwoods, as your subtropical listener mentioned, there are deciduous conifers. I'm sure you're familiar with the larches. Absolutely familiar with the larches. In fact, Chris, we need to talk about that in a future episode. I have vilified the evil Siberian larch trade in the past when I was talking about um, uh, imports from China, but there is a pretty interesting larch trade coming out of Siberia. We should talk about that in the future. Making a note, making a note of that. So yes, thank you, Chris. Thank you for getting um, a little bit more uh, biological here. The key, however, from a woodworker perspective, isn't whether they bear fruit or bear cones, but how the structure, what does the structure of it mean to me putting a hand plane or a circular saw or anything to the wood? So while I appreciate that, we don't want to confuse the woodworkers. Come on now. We're using big words like angiosperms and coniferous, and we're already confusing all the woodworkers. Um, one of the guys that I first started learning woodworking from was Chuck Bender, and he used to always say, woodworkers are dumb. Like, if I can do this, anybody can do this, because woodworkers are dumb. So Chuck Bender said that. I'm not saying that. So everybody who's offended by that, please send your email to Chuck Bender. So moving on, Alan had a question about sticker stain. He said on the recent Wood Talk extravaganza, you remember that show that we quit that we still do quarterly? <laughs> on the recent Wood Talk extravaganza, you mentioned the horror that is sticker stain. Are the stains from tannins or other stuff leaching into the stickers? Or leaching from the stickers, I should say. From mold or mildew growing between the sticker and lumber? 
would melamine veneered particle board like that used in closet systems make better or worse stickers? It would need to be kept dry, of course, or the particle board would swell and fall apart. Let me address that first. Um, in kiln drying material, um, it's not a dry process at all. You actually inject a fair amount of moisture into the kiln. Most dry kilns are called steam kilns. Um, part of the drying process is injecting moisture at the right time, the right recipe, if you will, is the right amount of moisture and the right amount of heat in order to control the drying process. So any composite sticker like that would just melt and fall apart. Second of all, I would worry actually about the glue that bonds the melamine to whatever the core is. I would think that would have a lot more reactive components to it than um, tannins and things leaching out of the stickers. But to your point... Um, some of the stains are caused by tannins, much like you would expect uh, a ferrous fastener, an iron fastener in oak to create stains because of the, the iron reacting to the tannins in the yolk. It's the same thing that happens. If you find a lot of tannins in a particular species, they could leach through because there's a lot of moisture through that kiln that can cause staining. The other thing is just the direct contact of that sticker, because when you load a kiln, you have the stickers in place, but there's also a lot of weight and the sticker stain will tend to show up near the bottom of the stack where there is the most weight on top of it. And that weight, um, think of like taking your, your pants to the dry cleaners and being pressed. It's not just running an iron over it. They actually put it in this big, heavy press. So it's heat, moisture, and pressure that creates that nice uh, crease on, on your slacks. Same type of thing is going on here with the, the stickers. There is a, uh, a crease, if you will, or a stain or a shadow that's being pressed into place. And the more that sticker is compressed, the more kind of stuff is squeezing out of it that can cause that problem. And some of it is just mold and mildew or fungus that is growing between them. Certainly when you air dry the material and it sits out in the open, the biggest thing you have to worry about, those contact points will grow mold and mildew. So there have been a lot of sticker designs that have come out from the I-beam design to kind of a um, almost double helix shaped design. People have used composite materials. Um, really, Ipe, the decking material, gets used a lot because it's, first of all, incredibly hard and it doesn't compress under the weight and it can be milled under those little I-beam shapes and, and still be quite strong. And it's much less reactive than some of the other um, really heavy, hard, dense tropical woods that have a lot more resin and a lot more tannins in them. So it's always a struggle. I don't think anybody's found the perfect sticker material, but more than the material that the sticker is made from is the drying process it goes through and how long it has to sit on stick. We like to try to prevent that from happening as much as possible to prevent those stains. At the same time, sticker stain can be a part of kiln drying and you do expect a certain amount of waste that comes out of a kiln. Oftentimes, as I said, it's the stuff on the bottom. Kyle wrote in and said in the CITES episode, actually he says CITES episode, I believe that's an autocorrect CITES episode, you talked about how to verify that exotic wood was harvested sustainably. How does one do that for domestic hardwoods? So Kyle, this is actually a lot easier because it's the same way. Um, I talked about verifying the sustainability and legality of, of exotics just by asking questions, asking the person you buy it from, where did they get it from? You know, if it's a if it's a CITES species, do you have an import export permit? Who holds that import export permit? Just knowledge of that information will tell you that it is it is legal. Domestic materials, there are I don't think, as far as I know, there are no none of our domestic species are actually CITES listed. So it won't 
wouldn't be a CITES conversation, but it's the same conversation. If you're buying cherry from a local lumberyard, where did you get it, local lumberyard? Who did you buy it from? Where does it come from? Is it coming from a plantation, a specific concession? Who is the person who actually felled those trees? And you can go upstream a little bit and find out who your dealer bought it from and who your dealer bought it from, who your dealer's dealer bought it from, et cetera, and even trace it back to a particular concession, a particular forest area. And most of those forests, a lot, I should say, of the forests of our domestic materials are actually... If they are not state run, um, some of them are federally run, um, or they are run by very, very large corporations. Warehouser comes to mind, and they have a great deal of paperwork on this stuff. And you can actually, if you have a region, uh, a specific region, like an Appalachian cherry region, you can contact a company like this and actually find out grid squares. Um, now, the difficulty becomes because it's not being exported, there is not the same... Um, strictures on labeling a pack. There's not GPS tagging back to trees and stumps, but the same silvicultural practices being used in the rainforest and abroad are being used in country. In fact, in many instances, in our highest demand domestic species, um, you know, the softwoods come to mind, Western red cedar comes to mind. There is more supply now than there was back in the day when everybody screams about how wonderful it used to be. Now, the trees may not be the same size because no, they're not old growth, but in large part, going back to that old stud, new stud uh, episode, we don't really need that old growth stuff. So for the supply we have is usually two to three times higher than the demand in a lot of species. In fact, a lot of Canadian um, forestry guys will claim that there is more Western red cedar available now than there was 100 years ago. And the same will apply for a lot of different species. Poplar, oh my God, there's so much poplar and it's very well managed. Cherry, a lot of cherry is available. It's hyper-managed in very specific areas because over the years we've discovered where it grows best. Same thing with walnut, same thing with maple. So for the most part, the domestic species are really not threatened all that much. And the species that fall outside of the high commercial demand really get, are, they're the domain of the individual independent sawmill, the urban lumber, um, the tree specialist taking yard trees down and things like that. And that lumber is, is not managed any way, shape, or form, but it's actually a heck of a lot easier to trace its source because in that case, it's all locally sawn. It came out of, you know, June's yard down the street and it was cut down by usually the person you're buying it from. So yeah, it, it just comes down to asking questions, Kyle, instead of just buying, you know, here's the material, here's the money, buy it. Where did it come from? And nine times out of 10, they're going to be able to tell you. And if they can't, that's when the red flags go up. So there is, um, I don't know if I want to call this a, a new segment, but Steve had actually written in a while ago and he said, you know, on, on Wood Talk, when you uh, were talking, you would often bring up kind of tales from the lumber yard and tales from a project we're working on or some lifestyles of the rich and famous type application of wood. And he said, I'd love to hear stories like that. So I'm going to give it a shot. Um, I certainly have plenty of tales from the lumber yard. What I don't want to do is necessarily turn this podcast into a, co a commercial for Jacobs and McIlvain Lumber and the Mill work that we do, but obviously that's where most of my exposure is going to come from. So let's just give it a shot and see what happens. So this week in Tales from the Yard, I want to talk a little bit about, since we are talking about plywood this week, I want to talk a little bit about something... Um, called block light um, or feather light, feather core. We're playing with names at this point, but we 
supply a lot of material to the boat building industry. And we, the boat builders use a lot of plywood. Certainly they use plywood underneath the fiberglass on, on, on the decking and things, even underneath like teak decks, there's a, a plywood substrate there. Cabinetry interiors are often all done in plywood and weight is always a big factor when you're talking about boats. So they're always looking for lightweight panels. The problem is that a lot of the lightweight aeronautical core panels are, are meant to just be fastened up on a wall or bent into shape or bolted down to some sort of, you know, aircraft frame, aluminum steel frame underneath it. Boats, not so much. And they need a core that will really hold metal fasteners. And a lot of those aeronautical cores, sometimes they're foam and they just don't hold fasteners. So we began doing some research and looking at uh, a block core panel. So a lumber core panel, instead of having individual thin veneer plies, you're gluing up thicker boards into a panel and then almost making like a cutting board, like an ingrade cutting board torsion box interior, and then using albasia skins. Albasia is is similar to balsa. It's not balsa. Um, it's, it's stronger than balsa, but it's got that same lightweight density property. And we have actually now manufactured and produced a very, very lightweight, incredibly stiff, incredibly stable, and very strong in the way of holding fasteners. The pullout strength of the fasteners is equal to or greater than most of the plywood you're going to get on the market. And we're just now starting to get it produced. And we're starting, it's being produced uh, abroad in um, Southeast Asia. And it's going to be coming in to exclusively right now to one of our boat builder customers. This is one of those things where it's a product that's not, you know, super, super inventive and out there, but it took somebody, frankly, with the money to say, we really need this. Let's invest in the the research, the R&D and the setting up of production because it took a lot of legwork and sourcing the individual materials, a lot of visits to a lot of factories in, in Southeast Asia to figure out who could do this, who had the quality control that we wanted. A lot of money, in other words, went into this. I am really hopeful that we're going to see Feathercore showing up in a lot more places because it's really got some cool applications beyond boat building. Just the strength and the stiffness alone is, is pretty cool. So there we go. Tales from the Lumberyard slash new product. Moving on to industry news. This has been um, thrown across my desk a couple of times. It's the Roseburg Forest Products scandal, the Okume scandal. It's yet another... Um, pull back the curtain and see, well, all our stuff is sustainably harvested. And then you look at who they bought it from and then who they bought it from and who they bought it from. And you realize, ooh, maybe not so much. So this is really a pretty old story. And I've been meaning to talk about it for a while, but I've been holding off, keep, you know, in the hopes that more information will come out as the dust settles. And it has been radio silence for like four months now to the point where one wonders if some of this is being swept under the rug. But Okume, um, it's it's the skin material for a lot of marine plywood. It is also used in a lot of siding products. Akume has some as a wide district as a wide geographic range, but you have to be careful where you're sourcing it from because it is so widespread. It can come from 20 different places all at once with a variety of dryness, a variety of quality control, and you end up with a product that you know shows up to the plywood mill kind of stinky. So you got to be very, very careful about that. At the same time, because the material crosses so many borders to ship through port, you get 
a lot of people with, whose hands are in the pot. And let's be honest, in Africa, there are a lot of warlords and a lot of people just looking for, you know, a quick payoff and not afraid to look the other way when some money greases their palm. So you have to be very, very con- uh, conscious of that supply chain, three and four people upstream from you. And this is one of the instances where, um, again, it's all alleged. There's been nothing proved at this point, but allegedly Roseburg checked like one level upstream, but didn't check two and three levels upstream. So they were bringing material in that was most decidedly legal in several local regions, which makes it in violation of the U.S. Lacey Act, which ultimately Roseburg is now responsible for that. And it's been kind of a big deal because Roseburg makes a lot a lot of products that we use in home building day in and day out. So it's just another one of those stories. There's been no conclusion yet. I will continue to keep an eye on it. But honestly, seeing as how quiet it's been lately, I'm not real um, optimistic that much is going to come of the whole thing. So let's move on to our emails. And again, kind of a plywood focus this week. Chris wrote in and said, what effect are tariffs having on plywood and hardwood prices? For the most part, the tariffs are mostly affecting plywood um, just because so many um, so many manufacturers of, of cheaper plywood are coming from, from China and the Far East. Certainly, there's a little bit of lumber being imported from the Far East, but it's usually going the other direction. We're exporting lumber out there. There's not a great deal of that material coming into here. The the tariffs are kind of all over the place. We've seen um, anti-dumping tariffs. We've seen tariffs anywhere from like 9% all the way up in some instances to 80-some percent. And it all depends upon the individual manufacturer and what that manufacturer makes, where they make it, what type of materials they use, how often they're shipping. There's a lots of different things that play into that. But what really is happening is it's driving the, the price of that cheaper Chinese plywood up to the level of um, what you would expect to find for a domestic panel of plywood. And the side effect of that is the domestic manufacturers are therefore increasing their prices, you know, to keep almost the same distance between their product and and the Chinese product. And, you know, it's it's the same type of thing where if you have two gas stations across the street from one another and one of them raises the price per gallon a tenth of a cent, the guy across the street raises his a tenth of a cent, even if it means he's two tenths of a cent higher because he was always a tenth of a cent higher. And it's that perception that my stuff is better because it's a slightly higher price or... You've always gotten used to paying more for my stuff. So now that their stuff is the same price as mine, I'm going to raise it by an equal amount. Now, this is not true entirely across the board, but it's pretty dang close. So you're seeing not only a rise in import Chinese plywood, but a rise in all plywood, both domestic made, Chinese made, Canadian made, European made, everything. It's uh, kind of the way things run. James had a question about plywood. He says, I've been using Chinese birch plywood. And and actually, Chris, I'm going to point to a couple of articles that I've written on the McIlvain site about tariffs and how it applies not only Canadian tariffs, but Chinese tariffs, Canadian tariffs on softwood, uh, Chinese tariffs on plywood. I've written several things over the years as several different tariffs have come down in the last five or six years. So I'll link to a couple of articles on the McIlvain.com website from lumberupdate.com. 
Now, James has a question regarding cheap plywood materials. He says, I've been using Chinese birch plywood as a cheap alternative to Baltic birch for some crating. Are products like this the McNugget of the lumber industry? I'm not sure what he means by that. Um, Does the production of particle board, MDF, and Chinese birch ply use lesser grade materials? Oh, okay. As a way to conserve the good stuff, or are they taking good material and then processing it however they see fit? So wait, James, are you trying to tell me that chicken McNuggets are not actual chicken? Is it like chicken legs and chicken beaks and stuff like that all ground together and made into a uh, quote chicken unquote nugget? Huh, who knew? So the, um, what can we say about this? The production of particle board and MDF, yes, they use lesser grade material, but it's more than just the materials, like the wood fibers and things that they use. The glue they use is lesser material. The face veneer, if it's if it's a piece of plywood, obviously an MDF and particle board isn't using face veneer, but. The materials themselves are kind of ground up, so the quality of the material almost doesn't matter because it's been broken down into like its core components. But the quality control in the line, the glue that's used, how it's produced, um, MDF and and, um, OSB and particle board, they're reliant heavily upon pressure and heat um, in addition to the glue as they're cured. And a lot of those things can be, for lack of a better term, corners can be cut. Things can be sped up. Less glue can be used. Less heat can be used. Less pressure can be used in order to reduce the price. Everything, time is money, right? So every second on that line, every um, joule of energy cranked into the press, anytime that's reduced, you can save some costs. So anything they can do to meet a price point. And that's really what the Chinese sheet good market is about. They go to uh, North American markets and say, okay, we have this panel. And the North American markets say, well, it's a long way to go. And I'm really got a supplier over here. What I really need is somebody that can meet, you know, this price point X. We'll just say $20 a sheet. And the Chinese say, okay, if we can meet $20 a sheet, will you buy it? The North American manufacturer says, sure. So then magically they meet that $20 price point. And how they do that sometimes is good, sometimes is bad. Sometimes it's efficiency. Sometimes they make the production process more efficient and they can save the money. Nine times out of 10, though, it's cutting back on a little bit of glue and cutting back on a little bit of press time in order to meet that price point. So it's not so much the actual raw materials, it's the production um, and, and everything that goes into into it, as well as maybe some cutting costs on packaging and shipping as well. Andrew wrote in with a question about plywood cores. He said, they are terribly variable in thickness. Is this a characteristic of inexpensive plywoods? As the price of plywood increases, so does the quality of the face veneers, I assume. But does that ever mean that the quality of the corresponding core is also improved? This is a similar answer to what James is asking about with um, MDF and, and particle board. The price point on a panel of plywood is very scientific traceable, I guess would be the word. This is a manufactured engineered product. So you truly do get what you pay for. So if you look at a sheet of cherry plywood on another sheet of cherry plywood, and there's a $20 price point difference from one sheet to another, there is something different along the way. The veneer may be of lesser grade. The veneer may be dried less than the other one. 
the core may be different as well. Now, there are different types of cores. There are veneer cores, different species, aspen, poplar, fir veneer cores. There are um, MDF cores, and there's different... Um, Com composition, chemical compositions of the MDF fibers. There are also hybrid cores that have a mixture of, of MDF and veneer. There are cross-banded cross cores. There's all kinds of different types of cores that certainly cost certain amounts of money. But even just sticking within veneer core, there is a lower grade, lower quality of, say, fur. So you can have two fur core piece, uh, sheets of plywood, but one's going to have a lesser grade of fur. One's going to have less drying. Then there's also the fact that some of them may have a lesser quality glue or just less glue in general. The glue is rolled out to an even thinner amount in between. And same thing I said with the MDF and the particle board, the heat and the pressure applied in the manufacturing process can change that as well. Probably the most expensive part of most plywood is that face veneer. So certainly changing that face veneer, but also not necessarily drying it as to as good a standard can also do a lot. And that's really what causes those potato chip plywood panels is it's just dried very poorly and rushed through production. So when you're talking about plywood and talking about quality of plywood, you absolutely get what you pay for. Pay very close attention to the price point. And if it face value, literally at face value, the two panels look the same, but the price point is different. You have to ask yourself what corners were cost on that other piece of plywood. And nine times out of 10, you're better off going the more expensive plywood. And I haven't even started talking about things like you know, voids in the core itself. Um, that is another thing. If you have um, different veneer cores put together, but it's not a single veneer sheet making up the core, but a bunch of things pieced together or a bunch of football patches, that affects the grade as well, but it also affects the price point. So there are many, 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 many different factors that go into creating a plywood panel. Every single one of them can be trimmed in cost in order to change the cost of the plywood. Not just the face veneer, but most definitely the plywood core because we don't actually see that. You can put a nicer face veneer over top of a frankly crappy core and the average consumer doesn't really know the difference. Which brings me to Jacob's question <clears throat> about the chemical composition of plywood in the US. He says, I'm a furniture maker at the edge of the Smoky Mountains outside Knoxville, Tennessee, and I have a customer who is wanting a bunch of furniture made with chemical-free, quote, chemical-free, low-toxicity low finish, etc. She asked about the plywood I'd be using. I use solid wood almost exclusively, so this isn't a particular problem right now. I also think most, people, most people's idea of how chemicals and finish and such can affect them are not rooted in reality anyway, but it did make me wonder. What are my options if I were to want a, quote, green plywood? I know about formaldehyde concerns in Chinese plywood, but are there low-chem American-made plywood products? Is this just a waste of time? This is a really good question, Jacob, because when it comes to formaldehyde amounts, it's always the Chinese products that get uh, the spotlight shown on them. But really... The North American made and European made, let's not forget European made because a lot of marine panels and a lot of higher quality uh, Kume panels and things are made in Europe or sometimes in Africa by European countries. They use formaldehyde in the glue as well. And the parts per million of formaldehyde that has been allowed has been steadily dropping over the years. 
Now, oh, I'm not going to remember the year now. Um, CARB, the California Air Resources Bureau, CARB 1 and CARB 2 regulations were passed. I'm I'm not even going to make up the year. It's been a while. Um, They were passed and basically limited the uh, amount of formaldehyde in a panel that could be sold in California. Well, California is a pretty major market. So all the manufacturers, some of them went and created a CARB compliant line. Other manufacturers said, well, this is stupid. We're not going to have two lines, one running just for California, even though it's a big market, and one running for the rest of the United States, because then you've got to deal with shipping to California, and what if another company gets it and ships it to California, and all that fun stuff. So many companies switched to entirely carb-compliant line. Uh, Columbia Forest Products, for example, moved away from aldehyde entirely and went to soy-based glues and were 100% compliant with carb-1 and carb-2 when it came around. And now all Columbia Forest products are toxic free um, panels that are that don't even they have some formaldehyde in it as a natural byproduct, but way, way, way below the parts per million regulated by carb one and carb two for that matter. So you can still find some panels made in North America and some in Europe that don't meet the California Air Resources Board um stipulations. But just recently, TOSCA Title VI was passed. That's the um, Toxic Substance Compliance Act. I might be wrong in that acronym. Everybody just calls it TOSCA Title VI. TSCA. I'm pretty sure Toxic Toxic Substance Compliance Act. This basically replaces CARB-2 on a federal scale. So now it's no longer just in California that you have to meet this low parts per million amount. And and honestly, it's it's 0.05 parts per million to 0.13 parts per million formaldehyde for panel products, composite veneer products, and marine products. So 0.05 to 0.13, that means nothing to most people, but that's the number if you're curious. So... This is now replacing and has replaced CARB-1 and CARB-2, and it is on a national scale. So any of the companies that still had that non-CARB compliant line running have to switch over. This has actually been a big deal for a lot of the European countries or European manufacturers, whereas a lot of the North American manufacturers, as I said, went ahead and switched, or they ran two lines in parallel while they began to phase the non-compliant line out until they get new machinery and new glue lines in and all that fun stuff in. Most of those companies, most of the North American manufacturers have moved to a fully compliant production in everything they make. It was the European ones that were still kind of hanging on because they didn't have some of the same regulations abroad. Well, this Tosca thing, when it first came out, there was thought that it wasn't going to include marine panels. That is absolutely not true. And now marine panels are very much a part of that. So all of the European manufacturers are now changing over to fully Tosca compliant. And really, when it comes to non-Chinese plywood, um, you're pretty much going to find all of it within the next year or so is going to be low toxicity. It's going to be green, quote, green compliant products. And in many instances, you'll find FSC stamps on them and things like that. So to answer your customer, as far as plywood goes, if it's, if it's North American made, it's going to be 
um, chem free. It's going to be a green panel. The Chinese products that are coming in are going to have to meet the same standards to be sold in the U.S. to meet that Tosca compliance. That's probably going to take a little bit longer, but it will absolutely be there. So you can let your customer know that this is very much the case. Now, there are varying degrees of greenness. They all have to meet that parts per million, but you'll find some uh, manufacturers like Apple Ply from States Industry is like... It's like the vegan, <laughs> you know, if some of the other if Columbia Forest products is like the vegetarian plywood, States Industries makes the vegan plywood. It's completely free of anything and all organic hippie grown products. <laughs> Shouldn't say that. Um, no, I just said hippie grown products. I went to college in Boulder. I'm well familiar with hippies. So, you know, you're going to find varying degrees of that. But really, when it comes to, like you were saying about finishes, the amount of toxicity in a finish is really quite low, if almost non-existent once it's cured. It's the same type of thing with these Tosca compliant panels, and it's really not going to be anything to worry about. So there we go, folks. There's our plywood-themed episode. Certainly, there could be a lot more to talk about with plywood. I haven't really talked about grading much in plywood. That's another one of those scary topics. So if you have additional questions about plywood, for that matter, about anything, let me know. As always, you can um, send your questions in via the contact form on lumberupdate.com or send me a voicemail. So far, I've only had one voicemail since I started this show. Pull out your smartphone, record a voice memo, and email it to lumberupdate at gmail.com. I'd love to hear another voice voice on this podcast besides me, wouldn't you? So definitely send in your questions. I love these mailback episodes. They're always a lot of fun. And just a reminder, um, you can get the the show via, you know, Apple iTunes, via uh, Stitcher. You can get it on Google Play. Subscribe via whatever your podcatcher app can be. You can get it. Or you can go to the website and subscribe via email. Join the email list and you'll get this episode every Monday when it comes out. Every other Monday, I should say, when it comes out, you'll get an email announcing the release of it. And finally, thanks again for all the support on Patreon. And just a little reminder, we are more than halfway there to the launch of a new YouTube species-focused channel. I've gotten a lot of questions through the contact form about, could you focus on this species? Could you focus on this species? That's exactly what I plan to do when I launch that YouTube channel. So let's get there, folks. Thanks as always for your support and uh, go buy some wood.